Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is post-production engineer Paul Holman. First of all, who uses Spotify in the United States? eMarketer estimates that there are 58.4 million users as of 2018, and they also predict it will go up to 65.6 million in 2019, and that represents almost 21% of all U.S. users. Wow, didn't think it was that high, huh? It turns out that Spotify is mostly an application that really depends on your age. For instance, the younger you are, the more likely you are to use it. 88.4% of everyone who's between 16 and 24 uses Spotify. 82% between 25 and 34. 71.5% between 35 and 44. And now it goes down a lot, 55.9% between 45 and 54. And if you're older than that, it's about 42%. It's still pretty high, but it's nowhere near what teenagers are using. Now, if we look at what the annual household income is, the more money you make, the more likely you are to subscribe to Spotify. So if you're in the top 25% of household incomes, then about 72% of you are subscribing to Spotify. If you're in the mid 50%, that means that about 70% of you are subscribed to Spotify. And if you're in the bottom 25%, still, you're probably subscribed to Spotify, 64%. Household location, too, makes a big difference. So, for instance, if you're in an urban location, about 77%. Suburban location, 68%. But if you're in a rural area, then it's right around 60%. Now, what does all this mean? It means that Spotify has really made big inroads in the United States. But that being said, we're only looking at one streaming service. And don't forget, there's still Apple Music, and we're probably never going to see the figures on that because Apple never gives them out. There's Amazon Prime and there's Google Play. Now, Google Play we might find out more about, but so far it's a minor player. Amazon Prime is coming on strong mostly because of Alexa and Echo and voice activation for music, and that's a really big deal, and it's bringing that to the forefront. Don't forget, everybody who has an Amazon Prime account also has access to Amazon Music, although very few of them seem to really use it. So that could turn around in a hurry. But what we're seeing here is streaming music has been adopted by just about every age group, and we're seeing if you're younger, you're more likely to use it than if you're older, Hey, if you're older, you're more likely to buy CDs too. So we're finding again that streaming music is really a big deal and it's getting bigger. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you out there are singers. If you don't sing lead, you're probably singing backup, but doesn't matter what you're singing. You have to really take care of your voice, and especially during the winter. We all worry about the summer when it's really dry and hot, but in fact, the winter can be just as bad. 
So how do you get over any voice problems? The big thing is good hydration and doesn't matter what time of year you have to hydrate. Why? Well, it makes the mucus that covers your vocal cords slippery. Think about it like motor oil. All those parts inside your car's engine need to work really well and slip and slide through there. And it's the same with your vocal cords. So how do you hydrate? Well, you drink consistently during the day. You can't just wait before the gig and drink a lot because it doesn't work that way. The body actually supplies all of the necessary hydration, but it doesn't happen when you're actually drinking. It happens later. So you can't just make up for a day without drinking by taking a liter and downing it right there before the gig. We all know that alcohol is bad for you, but why? Well, it dries out that mucus. Mucus is really important because, again, it makes those vocal cords slippery. So alcohol dries that out. Coffee and caffeine. Once upon a time, we thought that was very, very bad for your voice. Now we're finding out it's not as bad as anyone thought. Yeah, you should probably still stay away, but if you decide to drink a few cups of coffee or tea, it's not going to hurt you that much. Another way to hydrate is to eat foods that contain a lot of water. Cucumbers, melon, grapes, watermelon, anything like that, one more is really helpful. And finally, dairy products. Now again, we've heard don't drink milk, don't drink any kind of dairy products because it produces phlegm. And we found out that it really doesn't produce phlegm. What it does is just thickens the mucus. And of course, what we want is thin and slippery mucus, not really thick mucus around those vocal cords. With dairy products, it's all built around fat content. The more fat that's in your dairy products, the more likely that you're going to get this thickening happening. So if you're going to do any kind of milk drinking or eating cheese or anything like that, just look for something that has lower fat content. And finally, we know that sometimes there's emergencies that we really want to get a lot of hydration into our systems around our noses, in our around our vocal cords. And one of the ways that we can do that especially if you're out in the road, this is a really good thing. Soak a washcloth in hot water and then hold it over your mouth and nose. And that will come to your rescue when you really have to hydrate fast and get the right kind of mucus around your vocal cords. My guest today is Paul Holman, who mixes and edits sound for film, TV, and streaming broadcast. His work currently airs on Netflix, Amazon, Sci-Fi, Discovery, and the Hallmark Channel. And... He's mixed for episodic TV and documentaries that have aired on Fox, NBC, and PBS. Paul offers clients a full scope of sound services that include ADR, sound effects and effects editing, Foley, and music editorial. Paul works mainly out of his dubroom studio, but also works in many other recording rooms and stages around Hollywood. In the interview, we talked about making the transition from music into post-production, the intricacies of recording voiceovers, mixing indie films, and much, much more. We spoke via phone from a studio in Hollywood. Well, let's start from the beginning. Tell me how you get into the business. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a very familiar story, I, I believe, because I was uh, a music guy, player, uh, semi-professional for a few years. And then I um, stumbled into it, into the technical engineering side of things, and this a uh, result of a pretty small, modest uh, label deal that my buddies and I uh, found ourselves in, you know, years ago. 
And what we did, uh, and at the time it was a little crazy, but now is 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 uh, commonplace, is we built our own little studio. And this was the era of uh, 16-track Pro Tools, if that. So we're talking um, very early on in the digital audio days. Um, so, you know, we, we had a little bit of money. We uh, compiled some gear, computer, you know, Macintosh, the best at, at the time. We had maybe 16 tracks of audio and some keyboards, a sequencer, and, um, and it was just something, uh, something we all had to learn if we wanted to, uh, you know, produce ourselves, which was really the aim was to just take control of our, our music. And that's kind of how it all, it all went down. When you got that deal then, did you just work in your own studio or did you work with the producer in a bigger studio, commercial studio first? Yeah, you know, it was a combination. So uh, we, we were in the Bay Area at the time and uh, our label was here in Los Angeles. So we were kind of flying down and going into studios with various producers who, you know, the label found for us and, you know, nothing really quite was jiving. It was kind of hard to connect with, um, you know, ultimately the, the label really wanted a, a, a different band than they had signed. And, you know, this was, this was a very valuable learning experience, but, you know, we never really found anyone, um, who we, you know, felt comfortable with. So we started writing our own tracks and cutting our own demos in our own little studio, we did have a, an engineer in the Bay Area who we loved. So we, we did get into some 24-inch uh, studios up there, and it really was a hybrid. I mean, it was probably a, a, a very early proto version of what happens now where um, we brought in tracks and scratched vocals and uh, laid them back to tape, and in some case, ADAT. Um, you know, out of the uh, out of the Macintosh, and we were syncing to tape machines. I mean, it was a real headache. But at the end of the day, um, that was how we achieved our our drum sound. You know, is that we just kind of um, built it ourselves. And uh, again, this is it, it was it was fairly primitive, but um, a great way to learn, and also a, a perfect introduction to the world of of big studios, which of course you know was was an amazing experience um, being in some of these big rooms and, you know, having the opportunity to work with real professionals really kind of, you know, showed me the light and, and I got the bug, you know, as far as um, engineering and uh, production. Well, I want to get into what you're doing now in a second, but you mentioned something before that kind of intrigues me. You said that the record label wanted a different band than they signed. So how does that happen? <laughs> They obviously heard your demos, and I assume if they're any good, they went and they saw you play, right? They did see us play, and they uh, they liked the band. You know, we we were a decent live band. You know, these guys were were a dance label, and we were uh, a live band, sort of soul acid jazz. It was called at the time. I don't know if you remember that that genre. It yeah. kind of came and went. So you know, there was a real uh, fusion of of you know, vintage live playing with, with beats and with samples. And so the label really thought, um, you know, they had something with us and, and, you know, figured they could throw some beats onto the tracks and, and bring in some programmers and go that route. 
And we fancied ourselves, you know, a, a, a proper soul band, a uh, live band that liked to play. So, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we did, we did deliver uh, a record for them, but they, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget this. The, the chief of the label said, this is great, but what am I going to do with it? This isn't, <laughs> you know, this isn't, uh, we don't know what to do with it. We love you guys. We don't know what to do with you guys. Um, so what, what they, what they did do is they, you know, they had our masters, so they pulled, pulled our vocals off and pulled off some elements and sent it to their remixers. And, and these guys really did have a, a very, very successful dance compilation remix business. So, you know, some of these tracks, um, you know, got some play, uh, you know, they did, someone put us out in Japan. I mean, it's, it's very cliche, you know, big in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, but, you know, looking back, uh, retrospect 2020 is, uh, you know, you want to understand, uh, you know, what your label is looking for and what they can and cannot do for you. And, uh, you know, that, that experience has, has really, um, helped shape my approach to, to clients that, um, you know, you might think, uh, you're the smartest guy in the room and, um, you, you know, you're, your songs are the best or your music is, is, is proper or correct or authentic, this or that. But if, you know, if the label is, is not feeling it or they, you know, it doesn't, doesn't fit in with their business plan or their vision to build a business, then, you know, um, it's going nowhere. So, uh, this, this was a, uh, you know, a, probably a three or four year, uh, lesson in, you know, what to do, what not to do. And, how labels work. Um, so yeah, I, I, I look at, I look at it all very positively because you can't, you can't go to school for this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, how did that lead you into post-production then? Because being a music guy, it's a different world where you're at now. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Although, you know, the, um, the skills and the technical know-how really, um, helped, helped me make that transition. But uh, I, I really fell into it. I had a, a buddy around the corner from the studio who, um, you know, was a post guy. He, uh, he did foreign language dubs and he remixed um, um, M&E tracks to foreign language dubs, but he, he was a location sound guy. So when he went on the road, he needed someone to, to um, track his, his uh, dubs and to, you know, do his mixes. So I, you know, he brought me into the loop and really mentored me. I'm very grateful because I knew nothing of post. I mean, I was familiar with it, um, of course, the concepts, but the it is a different world and it's a different energy and uh, very, very technical. And, you know, it was there was a steep learning curve. And I'm just happy I had, you know, someone who was patient to, you know, teach me about sinks and machine control and uh, frame rate, all, all this jazz. Um, but again, it was just, um, right place, right time. Just really having a, you know, having a, a, a friend who, who needed a sub again, you know, uh, when, when someone's, when someone's sick or not available, then you get your shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, how did the dub room come about? Well, it's, it's a, it's a little room right in the middle of Hollywood. It's it's uh, West Hollywood actually, and when I was in the music business, I worked for a manager publisher, very small production company, 
really a one man show who found who found the spot. It was a you know an office, kind of a back back office uh, behind a bunch of buildings. But the location uh, was it, it is really prime. It's it's just a it's a small room, but a great location. And through the years, um, we've you know treated it here and there, and we've brought in gear and spiced it up. And um, it's it's still a music studio uh, at night, but I run the the VO um, ADR narration post component of it, and I've I've held on to it. Just as a VO room, you know, I do my mixing elsewhere, but um, again, it's uh, location, location as far as it goes because um, you know, talent uh, generally don't like to travel far. Yeah, in right. Los Angeles, right? Uh, so, and with uh, you know, with Google location, you know, the 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 production companies will put in a zip code or put in an address and figure out where the closest voiceover studio is. And in some cases, it's it's us. And uh, we built a, you know, just a, a, a nice little, it's almost a side business, but it does dovetail with with the mixing, which is nice. So if I'm on a, if I'm on a mix and, you know, we need, we need ADR, uh, it's just nice to have, have my own room that, uh, that I can use. So um, yeah, it's worked out really well. Well, let's go to voiceovers for a little bit. What is your signal chain? It is, in most cases, uh, a U87. And in some cases, it's the SM7, which I'm on now. And that is really mostly because of, of the noise thing. Um, you know, we, it is, the room is, is treated, it sounds pretty good, but, you know, being off, a, being off Sunset Boulevard, it's just noisy. Mm, yeah. And, um, you know, the... I, I sometimes struggle with with the condenser, but you know, for the most part, I just I'm just always uh, I'm always listening. But that's generally where we where we do the voiceover narration is the UA7, and then there's a um, uh, Brent Avril Pre, a couple channels of 1081, I believe it's called a, I guess it's a Neve Neve sort of thing, mm-hmm. and an 1176, and that is probably 90% of the time. That's the chain. You know, and I'll dabble with with some other mics, and for ADR, of course, uh, I have a, a Sennheiser, uh, the Shotgun, which is the, the industry industry standard for that. But um, that's yeah, that's pretty much how how it is. You know, I I keep the compression fairly light, and the 1176 is you know generally pretty transparent, does the job. You know, just for for the shoutier the shoutier portions. What does that mean when you say you keep it light? Uh, well, as far as compression, yeah, um, you know, it's a real, I mean, you know, narration is, is narration voiceover is generally straightforward in that your talent is pretty consistent in their delivery. Um, and you know, it's a lot easier than say ADR where you have an actor performing the movie. Okay. Um, so really the, the, the greatest challenge I, I, I deal with is, you know, a very excited actor on the shotgun mic. And that's when, you know, that's when I have to really watch, watch how I'm hitting, hitting the levels and hitting the compressor. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to crush it too much. And, and I do have limiting, um, uh, as well, which I think is just a stopgap. I try not to even hit that limiter. 
So I'm really, you know, almost like a location sound guy in, in some aspects where I'm, I'm riding the knob. If, if some guy is going to shout, I try to, you know, anticipate that. And uh, that's, that's really, um, that's the challenge. That's where you really have to pay attention. Voiceover narration, you know, set it and it's usually pretty good. Um, as long as the talent is still and isn't moving around too much, you know, proximity effect is a, is a real is a real pet peeve of mine because I'm very, very sensitive to how the room sounds, um, you know, so I, I prefer to get, get them pretty close. The reason why I ask about the compression is because I had my own situation where I filled in for somebody when I was first new in Hollywood at a voiceover studio that mostly did commercials, mostly radio, but some television. My friend went on vacation for a couple of weeks and he told me his method of doing it. He basically, he had a DBX-160, and he said, okay, just set it so you get about 60 dB of compression and leave it there. So I thought, well, okay, that's the way they want it. That's the way I'll do it. That being said, when I listen to a lot of voiceovers, it seems like there's a lot more than that that's going on. And for the life of me, I can't bring myself to put that much compression on. So that's why I'm curious about what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree, Bobby, and I think this might be, you know, coming from the music world where not, a, I wouldn't say it's a general rule because there are different schools of thought, but, you know, I, I prefer not to print compression, you know, uh, because, you know, as a mixer, I want to, you know, I just want to have, maybe it's a control freak, uh, you know, control thing, but I want to have the ability to compress the hell out of it later. And, you know, I, I think the same goes for, for VO narration, you know, radio especially has always been, um, compressed to death, I think almost as a stylistic thing, as a, as an aesthetic. Um, and then of course the, you know, the broadcasters compressed even more to death. So, you know, um, I think there is a sound to, to crushing, you know, 6 dB all the time. I just, you know, I don't really like that sound just as a, as a matter of taste. Um, I would prefer to, you know, keep it natural. And again, I think it might be a, it might be a, from music, you know, where I just, I'm a dynamics guy Yeah. and, and granted, you know, a voiceover will certainly be, it'll be compressed for sure down the line, whether I'm doing it or whether someone else is doing it. But, you know, I, I want to hear the, even in a voice, even in a narration, I, I just, I like the dynamics. I like the performance. And, um, you know, a, a, a good voice actor is like a session singer. I mean, it is, there's so much similarity in how one performs a voiceover to how one sings uh, a lead. Uh, I mean, it's the same, the same sort of things, uh, you know, as, as the tracking engineer, you're listening in the same way and it's really interesting. And, you know, the, the idea of phrasing and dynamics and energy, all the stuff that you would try to bring out of a singer, you know, really, really is reflected in, in voiceover. And again, if you have a really pro experienced talent, you don't worry about it because that's what they do. That's why they're hired. That's why they make the big bucks because it is just how they perform. And again, even, even the, the most dry delivery voice copy, commercial narration, you name it, you know, it, it, it does need to be performed, uh, and it needs to capture a certain feeling, a certain energy. 
And if you don't, uh, or if the talent doesn't capture that, the the client, you know, they're gonna, they might not love it. They might get someone else. That now, then again, they can't generally describe what they don't like about it. You know, it's it's hard to put your finger on it. But when you when you get a real heavyweight voice person on the mic, it's just it's just right, and and you just sit back and uh, and let them do their thing. And compression is is you know again it's it's there as a stopgap. It's there just to keep keep uh, things level wise in a good place. So you're not you know you're not um, committing to to a sound of of a compressor. I remember very early in my career, I was doing jingles. I didn't do many of them, but I did do one jingle session, and there were four or five singers, and the leader of the session kept on saying, it doesn't sound right, it doesn't sound right, it doesn't sound right. And I'm thinking to myself, sounds fine to me. And finally he came in and he said, okay, let me just see what you're doing. And he looked at the compressor. It was a DBX-160, another one, not a 160X, but a 160. And he said, oh, that's what it is. And he cranked it up so there's 20 dB of compression. And he goes, ah, that's the sound. <laughs> <laughs> right and it sounded like way too much but on the other hand it was like well yeah that does sound like radio to me all of a sudden you know it sounds yeah. like a jingle but uh it i can't bring myself to do that i don't know why but uh you know again it was one of those things very early in my career it's like wow okay now i get it yeah and and look i i, I think it 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 also you know if you were in in a in a very big budget, high rate um, jingle recording, um, there's no time to, you know, to compress it later. Yeah. You know, maybe it's it's just not practical. You just get the sound um, on tape and uh, the client's in the room in many cases. So, um, yeah, I understand the logic. Um, I don't like the sound. It sounds like, you know, you probably don't either. And again, I've, I, I've never had a complaint to the effect that, you know, it's not crunchy enough or it's not loud enough, uh, because again, you know, a lot of this stuff is going is going into post production elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's being sent to an editor and they're cutting it in, and you know, this stuff will be worked on in some shape or form um, by another audio guy. So you know, the last thing I want is is some mixer in you know Amsterdam was mixing the spot to uh scold me for crushing the vocal yeah right uh, i i that doesn't make any sense you just mentioned amsterdam someone in amsterdam perhaps using something that you're doing and i know you mentioned in an email that you get a lot of work from outside the country so how did that come about um well you know i i have a buddy who uh is a dutch actor who came to la and um, he's a voice actor, so he was getting, you know, looking for for voice gigs and animation jobs. But he had um, he had clients in Amsterdam, and his his bread and butter was still, um, you know, based based over there in the Netherlands. So he he convinced the uh, his his client to uh, to work with him in my place. Um, remotely, and this was around the time of uh, Source Connect coming coming to the fore, and you know becoming a a 
an affordable alternative to ISDN because you know I've I've used ISDN at at other rooms, but I've never um, never had it here. And in as a matter of fact, in ten years of doing this, I think I've been asked maybe on four or five occasions whether I had ISDN. So that's it's a happy a happy circumstance that you know you can um, you can do it otherwise with with Source Connect and really to be honest most of the time um, I'm working just as as you and I are right now it's it's through Skype mm. because with with a narration voiceover or an animation read um, they you know they just want to hear they want to be able to listen in and direct and converse with the talent. And um, there's often, you know, the engineer on the other side will, in many cases, uh, capture the Skype recording, even though it doesn't sound great. But they'll they'll massage it for time, see if it fits into the spot. And um, in many cases, that is a sufficient way to work. Uh, so anyway, go, sorry, going back to your question, I, I diverged a little bit. Um, through this, you know, this buddy of mine who was getting these jobs, um, I just realized, hey, you know, there's there are a lot of production companies all over the world with actors in L.A. And you'd be surprised, um, or maybe you wouldn't, but so many actors will be in town here for one reason or the other. Maybe they are on a shoot or have a show or they have auditions, pilot season, you name it. But they're still committed to um, finish a project that they that they did somewhere else. And um, because of you know the internet and decent bandwidth um, doesn't even have to be great bandwidth as long as you have decent bandwidth um, and you can technically get people talking to each other. It's it's a great solution and it's very affordable because you know traditionally the company would uh, either have to buy a ISDN or they would have to physically be in the room with their talent. So, you know, even a, a, a company in New York City or Atlanta, traditionally they would fly out to LA or fly the talent back and be in the room to make sure it's right. Um, but nowadays we have a couple of methods of, uh, of doing it remotely. And uh, I have... Uh, a good stream of work that is in, in where I've never, I've never met my bosses. I've never met my clients. I've just talked to them over Skype and through email. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting and it's, it's very efficient, you know? Um, and as long as, as long as the, the recording's captured and everyone's happy, then, um, you know, there's no need for them to be physically in the room or watching the talent. Uh, although they could, they can watch the talent on video, uh, presumably if they want. But um, yeah, it's been a nice uh, it's been a nice run of of overseas uh, companies who who uh, reach out to me. I have a story that you'll appreciate, and this goes back to the caveman days of recording. It was in the '80s, and this again is in that situation where I was filling in for a friend. So one day there's a session, and it's a voiceover session with Mark Leonard. Mark was, if you ever saw Star Trek, Spock's dad. Okay, right. It was for a scope commercial, and it was bouncing the signal off the satellite to the post house in Seattle. The ad agency was in Las Vegas, and they were on the phone, on a speakerphone, monitoring everything. 
So with the satellite, you only have one hour. You have 60 minutes. One way or the other, you have to be finished in that 60 minutes. So we start this voiceover, and, and it's going fine, it's going fine, it's going fine. And I'm recording it, and so is the other place. Why, I don't know, but I didn't ask. And somewhere in there, I hear over the speakerphone from the agency, can you take about two seconds out? And they tell me where, and I say, okay, I go over to the tape, and I slice out two seconds. And I play it back for them, and they go, nah, you know, put it back to where it was. And I can't find the piece of tape. It's gone. And I look all over for it. And in the meantime, I keep on hearing, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? What's going on? And the clock is ticking down towards the end of the hour. And I'm really sweating, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? And by dumb luck, I happened to look behind the tape machine. And it was stuck to the wall. This little piece of tape. And I, wow. luckily, I pulled it out and stuck it in there. Everything was back to normal. Everybody was happy, and we got finished just barely within the hour. But it was one of those times, one of the few times in the, in the business where I was so freaked out when it was finished because it was like, yeah. wow, that was really close. But that was what we had to do back in those days, and now it's so much easier all the way around. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's funny because you, you never forget those stories of of the highest pressure situation. I mean, I'm sure if someone asks you, you know, what was the, what was your, your most nail biting teeth gritting experience in audio that would, you know, you'll never forget it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I can't imagine the, uh, the hourly on that satellite. I mean, can you imagine, you know, the budgets, you know, and again, it, a lot of it comes down to budget, you know, those days ad agencies were, um, you know, like the labels, they didn't care. Yeah. They, you know, money was no object. And, um, it is now, so it makes a lot more sense to, uh, you know, it makes more sense to to rent Skype and not even Source Connect in some cases. You know, it's just it's less money. You mix a lot of projects. You mix documentaries and indie films, and you mix for streaming media. And you say you, you don't use your studio for that. Do you mix in the box? Do you mix in another studio? How does that work? Yeah, so you know, I I do have my own studio. Um, uh, it's a mixed room that I have a, 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 a post setup, you know, 5-1 near field setup where I can do, you know, they, they used to call it pre-dubs or pre-mixing, but I can pretty much do um, everything in the box. Um, I do have a control surface, but um, what I will usually do with clients, you know, when I meet them or when we're talking about the job is I will say, look, you know, um, I mix here in my studio, my 5-1 studio. It's, you know, it's a good sounding room. It's not a theater. Um, if you would like to mix in a theater, uh, there's one that I can work at that I would be happy to bring you to. Or if you prefer, we can mix it here and then we can go spend a day in the theater on the stage and um, do a playback. And, you know, my, my follow-up question to that is, you know, where is your film going? Because um, nowadays, a film, quote unquote, isn't necessarily going to a theater. Not necessarily. I mean, hopefully it is. You know, the, the, the aim of any filmmaker, I think, is to play theatrical, you know, whether it's a, a film festival or Sundance or ultimately, you know, theatrical distribution. But, you know, these days, um, there are plenty of outlets, plenty of streamers, and 
the small screen, quote unquote, is is in some cases a more likely destination for your project. So I always have that conversation and I leave it up to the to the filmmaker, director or the producer, you know, do the math and tell me what you want to do. So, you know, it's it's a it it's a situation where, you know, I can work in my room for the most part. I can get a really good sounding mix. And, you know, I prefer that we go to the big room, uh, you know, towards the end to the stage. And um, and I just take my drives over there. So it's it's a very it's a very efficient, handy way to work, I think. Um, and, and again, these are smaller films, documentaries. On bigger projects, um, I work freelance for uh, bigger mix houses. So then I go to their room and I will mix in their room. So I am, you know, really um, bouncing around, uh, quintessential freelance freelance guy. Um, but it, it keeps it interesting because um, I, I love the big room. Um, I am rarely on big consoles, you know. I'm generally on... Um, um, smaller con- control services, which um, which is which is fine for me. It's it's how I kind of came up, um, and uh, it's it seems to seems to work well. I mean, the results are seen to work out pretty well. You're seeing that even on the stages. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I think I think a you know a bigger stage will is sort of appealing to to a different client in many cases. Um, so you know the the S six or the bigger console is, you know, is is more of a industry standard on a bigger stage. But, um, you know, the my favorite stage I I like to work at still has um, C twenty fours, and um, I I'm I'm fine with it. And you know, I sort of have I I learned on a mouse and keyboard anyway, so I'm I kind of bounce around back and forth, um, and uh, and I have my workflow that that seems to you know seems to be okay. Do you have a different approach per project? So in other words, if it's a documentary or an indie feature or just something for streaming, do you approach it differently or the same? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the the approach is is ultimately how many audio people can work on this thing. Um, and, and I'll explain that. Uh, I'll elaborate a little bit, uh, a documentary or indie film, you know, ultimately the client will come in for, for a mix, you know, we need this mixed. And in some cases, you know, they don't really understand or appreciate or, or have the experience that, well, you know, this, this thing needs a lot of work prior to the mix. I mean, it, it really needs some sound effects. It's missing footsteps, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, depending on the needs or the expectations of the project that'll sort of dictate, you know, the approach. Uh, in other words, um, at, at the very minimum dialogue, especially with doc documentary reality, anything like that, you know, the dialogue needs a lot of work. I mean, uh, even more important than the mix quote unquote is, is cleaning dialogue. It's a real challenge. Um, but on the other hand, I think that is, that is the step in the process that brings the film very far from where it was just a week ago. Um, and, and, and just an aside, you know, you had a dialogue editor on, I think a year ago or a few months ago. And, and it's, it's, it was so fascinating because what, what these people do is, is 
amazing work, very tedious, very precise, and so important because the best mixer in the world can't make, you know, can't polish a turd. Um, so, you know, circling back to what you asked, the very minimum a, a film or a show needs is is some good dialogue work and and then a mix. And then, you know, beyond that, we have the conversation about Foley, about sound design, about backgrounds. And, you know, on a, on, a, on a bigger project where, you know, they understand or it's a network show, they understand, you know, this is, this is what this thing needs. Then there'll be a team of people uh, on the film who, who work on it before I mix it. So, you know, where I think traditionally anything that was being made or any sort of post project would go through the same audio you know, steps or the same sequence of events. Nowadays, you know, it's not so straightforward. Um, you really have to sit with the with the filmmaker and and prioritize. And you know, I'm always advocating for, you know, the more the more time spent on your sound, the better this film will play. I mean, ultimately, that's the that's the conversation and helping them to understand what that means. And you know, documentary. Um, is is a little different in that sound effects don't play a you know a major role necessarily, but um, a sound effects pass or a backgrounds pass does wonders for for documentary. And if nothing else, it's because you know you really just have mono content with some music. And you know if you're if if you're gonna envelop the the viewer or or make a 5-1 mix or anything like that, you need other elements. You need to bring in um, ambience, sound effects, traffic, birds, what have you. So, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is sort of the, the conversation. How, how are we going to approach your project? What are your expectations? What is your budget? Um, you know, if it's going to cable uh, broadcast, and of course, you know, it, it has to be right. Um, but, uh, you know, I've done some, some network shows that are, you know, pretty lean. And, um, you know, we knock out pretty quickly. So you just have to be open to, uh, to, you know, different, different approaches. What is the one thing about post-production that music engineers don't know or don't realize? Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I think maybe it's the, you know, not to use a pun, but there is sort of a big picture approach to post-production versus music uh you know a song is a song is however many however many minutes long post-production you're dealing with maybe a short film maybe a commercial maybe a feature and i would say it's more of of you know the experience is different and there's a there's a cliche in in, in post audio that is if you notice the sound it's wrong Hmm. In other words, if you're if you're watching a show or a movie and you're distracted by something you hear, then that is problematic. I, I think maybe that's just my my philosophy. Um, so you know, g- given that it's it's you know, audio post is is very important, very crucial, and will will take things, you know, very very far in a in a in the proper direction. But you're not necessarily that aware of it, especially if you're a casual listener. Um, whereas music, 
you know, really every every kick, every snare, every you know, phrasing. You know, there's there's it's a it's a you can be a lot more precise, and I think that that the results of that translate more because you're listening. You're not necessarily looking at at something. If you're looking at something, you know, it is a it is a real you know, multimedia ex- experience. You're listening. You might be reading as well. You might be reading subtitles. Um, you're certainly looking at something. And so, as a whole, you know, we we say there's uh, another expression that you know the show plays. It plays well, meaning you know you can play it from top to bottom and enjoy it and experience it. That's not to say it sounds perfect or that it's perfect. It means that it's not bumping. The listener, it's not distracting you. It's not taking you out of the story. And I think you know that's that's our main responsibility is 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 enhance the story and by no means take anyone out of the story. So you know, it, I I would say you know it's different than music in some respects, but in many more ways, it's it's similar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I was talking about a, a voice performance. Um, and an acting performance. I mean, it really, it it hits people the same way as as a vocal in, in a way. You know, you you know when it's right. You know when it's good. You're you're engaged. You're grooving. You're driving. You know, once 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 there's something off or something wrong, you know, you're you're out of it. Yeah. And we uh, we try to avoid that. Last question, Paul. What's the best piece of business advice that you've received from somebody, or maybe you learned along the way? Yes, I I think a lot about this question when you ask it, and there there are always so many, so many insightful answers. Um, but w- what I what I remember someone said, or maybe not, maybe I picked it up, but is is, is twofold. I think, which is that you want to um, earn trust with your with your client, you know, on a creative level, but also on a personal level. Um, the same goes for for music. You know, when you're sitting at the board and there are people behind you, you know, um, you want them to be comfortable and to trust you. So, you know, yes, we're we're all in the people business, but we're we're in a trust business. You know, uh, um, the client, the producer, the director, you know, they should trust that you know what you're doing. And in post production, you know, they generally might not know what you're doing. You know, they might most likely don't know what a compressor is or what, you know, a, a roll-off is or, or this or that. Um, so, you know, it's it's in your hands and, and you have to uh, earn the trust so that they're comfortable and they can be creative. And then the other the other sort of piece of that, which also I, I'd like to, you know, tell younger people who are, you know, who are looking to get in the business, how do you get in the business, is, um, you know, try to solve a problem. Um, because most clients or most people who come to you have a problem or two or three, or they might come up as you're working, um, whether it's something technical, whether it's the budget. And in some cases, you know, there's someone above them who's giving, you know, who's giving them trouble. I mean, there's always the, you know, there's that whole uh, shit rolls downhill adage. And, you know, the post, uh, the finishing people are usually at the bottom of that. So the more we can solve a problem for someone else, uh, the more they will, they will trust, you know, what you're doing. You can find out more about Paul at dubroomstudio.com. That's one word, 
dubroomstudio.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now Spotify. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <music>